0: My name is David, and you're listening to the FolkWise Podcast. So I know it seems silly to be celebrating already, but hey, we're on episode two. Do you know how many podcasts there are in the world with only one episode? Yeah, I don't either, but I'm guessing it's a big number. That said, we've got a really awesome guest to talk with us this week, and to say I'm excited is an understatement. I've had the pleasure of knowing Jeff Gomez for a little over a year now through a pretty unique connection, one we'll touch on as the episode progresses. But the reason I chose Jeff to join us, apart from being a wonderful human being, is his dedication to keeping people and the stories they tell at the forefront of his work. No matter how much society progresses, or regresses depending on who you ask, stories never go away. The quality of stories may change, along with the subject matter, but narratives are what drive us. Not only has he recognized this, but he is dedicated to helping others do the same, especially in light of our technologically driven world we live in. So as we dive into discussions about storytelling, starting a business, social media, and inevitably some tokusatsu, here's Jeff Gomez. Thanks for joining the Joe. I already screwed up. Thanks for joining the Joe. See, I can't even say Joe. Uh, Wow. Okay. Thanks for joining the show, Jeff.
1: All right, David. So good to be here. (laughs) <laughs> thank you
0: thank you for joining us how is your day going so far we haven't had a chance to really talk because we had some technical difficulties coming into this
1: <laughs> well it's a lot better now that i see what's on your t-shirt there david that's seven oh, yeah the uh, uh the the wonderful and uh and good guy robot from the ultraman franchise which I have a little something to do with.
0: <laughs> a, little, a little bit. I don't know if you notice. I actually stole some of uh, my son's vinyls back there. I think I've got Ultraman Noah, there's a uh, Bolton, and then Black King, and it's an uh, Alien Metron hanging back there. Wow. Just, just thought it'd be nice to put on the video for the minor clips we're going to be adding.
1: Well, that's but. great. Ultraman Noah is a deep cut, so n- oh, now I know. I know you're a real fan.
0: You know, and it was just announced the other day that Nexus is finally coming out on DVD, and I am very, very, very excited for that one. That's, uh, I think, like number two for me after Mavius, So
1: he's, he's super cool.
0: But uh, obviously this could devolve into an Ultraman podcast very quickly. <laughs> That's not why we have Jeff on the show. Um, but again, thank you so much for joining. Uh, for people who haven't checked out our show before, this is the Folkwise podcast. Our focus with this show is as software engineers. We want to have conversations about technology and more importantly, the humans behind and using the technology Uh, as a company. That is our first and foremost priority is to make sure that everything we are designing is with people in mind. And we're excited to talk about people with Jeff. So if you wouldn't mind, give us kind of a, you know, that that broad, uh, not so deep story, because then we're going to dive in more about like Starlight Runner, Transmedia, stuff like that
1: sure um well um uh, I- I'm a child of the uh, the 70s and 80s um I-, I grew up at a time where um uh you know being uh, a fan of fantasy and science fiction was still a little bit uh you know uh frowned upon <laughs> and um, and so a- as a kind of local nerd and Flushing, Queens. <laughs> I um I didn't have you know uh, many people to to connect with. Um, my my outlet were things like Dungeons and Dragons, and um uh and and then one day I I encountered um a uh, a trash eighty <laughs> a, a computer. That yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it could be somehow bound up through a telephone line to connect you with other people. And, and so, um, this realization that you could play a game like Dungeons and Dragons, which involved uh, the creation of fantasy worlds with other people who lived miles and miles away from you, that blew me away. You know, um, uh, th- this notion that. Uh, we can combine our minds through wires <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, to to create something amongst ourselves. Um, uh, you know, would one day, I felt at that time, this was in the very early 1980s, uh, one day would uh, enable us to use video and images and um, uh, our voices, um, our avatars, to create um uh, entire uh, fantasy worlds that were capable of traversing multiple media, um it all came together for me back then and and um, it's been you know climbing a ladder <laughs> mm-hmm. in in terms of my career to try and uh, and and figure out how to get that done
0: yeah i and that's what's so crazy right because even being born in the very late eighties like I had about eight months worth of the 80s to put, you know, to my name. And, but even then, you know, like we grew up and obviously the internet and computers were around, but it still was not as ubiquitous as it would be towards the end of the 90s. That's and right. I just, I, I I can't help but look back and be like, I mean, obviously you were, you were uh, more aware of it than I was, but I had no idea what was to come, right? For me, the internet was simply just a way to go on and like... <laughs> There's a story I just, in the back of my head, I just remember my my mom, of all people, started watching South Park. And she thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And she's like, Davey, I want you to go on the computer and download some uh, sound clips for me. And I'm like, what? I'm like seven <laughs> at this point, just absolutely confused. But that was about as much as I had thought about the internet as like a way to go on and download a sound clip here and there. Uh, and then obviously we're looking at what we're doing right now. We are seeing each other online. We're recording a podcast, uh, talking about the way that technology is shaping our life. It's just a conversation I never would have dreamt of
1: years ago. Let me tell you something about, about that South Park. Um, uh, (laughs) that, that was the first video meme that, that started to kind of move around, uh, the internet. You know, um, it, it, was, it was still the relatively early 1990s, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the fact that people were figuring out how to send that thing to each other, because it was kind of big at, at the time, yeah. um, uh, you know, in terms of how many megabytes it was. Um, uh-huh. it, you, you know, it, it convinced me that video would be a thing. You know, um, and um, and it allowed me to go to my bosses at uh, Acclaim Comics and and say, hey, can can we put some video on on the website with some backstory to the comic books and video games that I was producing and developing? I never let go of the nerd thing. I just managed to figure (laughs) out how to make money from it. Right. And uh, and and they said, well, as long as it doesn't cost us anything. (laughs) <laughs> and um, and that's what we did. So the, these little rotating uh, gifts and and, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and some lore backstory to the the stuff that I was uh, producing in the comics and the games was so popular the the website would would crash uh, <laughs> uh, for for a plane. <laughs> Probably and, didn't um, take
0: much back then.
1: No, it didn't. Well, I mean there were thousands though. Thousands of hits yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, would 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 throw it down, and. Um, uh, that's when I knew I was onto to something. That's when I mm-hmm. knew that the Internet would play a role in something called transmedia storytelling, uh, the, this notion that we could ke- tell stories in concerted fashions across multiple media mm-hmm. and um, and that they can be enjoyed collectively by fans.
0: Yeah, and obviously you, you jumped right into what I wanted to talk about because before we get into Starlight Runner and what you're doing now, I mean... This fascination and this dedication to story doesn't just happen in a vacuum, right? Something must have happened. You must have been cultivated and developed in a way growing up to care the way that you do. And I've got to ask, I mean, does Joseph Campbell come into play at all here? <laughs> uh, or is it just kind of like, because I mean, you know, a lot of people I feel like didn't even know who Joseph Campbell was until George Lucas brought him up, right? And it was like, hey, like I pretty much dedicate all my Star Wars stuff, apart from, taking ideas from Dune, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I'm indebted to Joseph Campbell. I feel like that really popularized him. So like, what was it for you that made you so dedicated to telling stories?
1: That's a, a great question. You know, um, the, uh, the enchantment, uh, uh, that, that gripped me when I was reading a great book or watching, um, uh, you know, one of those early proto-Japanese animes like uh, Speed Racer or oh, yeah. Marine Boy or a Gigantor, um, uh, y- you know, they, they were convincing, you know. Mm. I-, I lived a life where, you know, uh, it was pretty rough for me as a kid. Um, uh, you know, I-, I grew up largely alone. Um, uh, we didn't have much money. Um, uh, escape was important to me. But uh, my brain would take apart what it is that was being shown to me. And if the story was flimsy, if it didn't stand up to my scrutiny, my questions, it was disappointing. So I really um, uh, came to enjoy big, rich, complex stories uh, Mm -hmm. like the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, um, uh, these, these big mythological narratives. Um, or or the work of Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes because oh, yeah. the, the, the world was so rich and he was so brilliant and the challenges he faced were were so fascinating. Um, uh, you know so um, little by little um, I, I wanted I had to figure out what I was going to do what, what was interesting to me and I, a lot of my friends they would like, Rattle off sports statistics, or <laughs> you know, or yeah. or talk to me about car engines, you know. And um, and I thought, well, you know, why is why are these stories so magical? What mm. did they do to convince me, you know? So I started asking questions of these narratives, and what I learned, uh, David, was that there is a um, a, 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 a construction to them. There, there's a, a kind of science, a craft, to being able to create story. And I really um, uh, uh, began to truly study how story works. Huh. And, and the, the, the reason for this, um, that as I, I got older, became more and more important to me, was in learning story, in understanding how these characters were accomplishing their goals... I began to learn how to accomplish mine and and started to succeed in an environment that discouraged success. Do you see what I'm saying?
0: Absolutely. So
1: so I was able to rise out of that and and live my dreams to, to, to make comic books and video games and get involved in Hollywood and so forth. So... Um, if, if that were possible for me, I thought that it would be possible for a lot of the people, for example, that I left behind, that are still yeah. there, you know, um, and, and I feel for them. I understand what it's like to be them. It hurts, mm-hmm. you know. So it, there's an imperative to this study of story for me. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and learning how it's constructed allowed me to then... Uh, start constructing my own or fixing, repairing like an auto mechanic yeah. <laughs> w- f- with race cars, <laughs> you know, uh, fixing and repairing the stories that came into my shop, which would ultimately mm-hmm. be Starlight Runner, my company. That's awesome.
0: I... I have to agree, like, especially Tolkien, right? That was, you know, the... I never did read the Simulrillion growing up. It never really caught me. Um, hmm. But I know growing up for me, you know, it was a lot of uh, Lord of the Rings. And then my dad actually introduced me as two different authors. It was Raymond E. Feist and then David Eddings. And I ate up so much of what they had to write, like the Rift War saga sure. with Feist. And then, you know, David Eddings did like the Bulgarian and the Malorian and all that. I and know them well. Y- yeah, there's just... it. It's almost like when you're talking about an escape, for me, it wasn't because life was so tough, even though at that point in my life it was, but there's just something that you're right. You, you'd you read these books and it just felt so tangible, right? Yeah. Like you forget that you're reading a book. You You really do feel like you're in it, That's which right. is, you know. Without jumping too far ahead, that's one of the beauties of uh, genres like Tokusatsu. Is even though it is practical effects, and yes, it's the guys in the suits. Like you get so lost in that. That I mean, compared to the CGI fest that we get nowadays in Hollywood, like I get more immersed in these shows with practical effects, feeling like I'm in the thick of it because it does what it's supposed to do, and it's done so well. Um, Yes. So, yeah, that's how I felt. I just uh, actually read the Dune series here beginning of the year. I never actually went through it until the movie. And I can't say it about every book, but the first few, like, I just, yeah, I felt myself so immersed in it. Like, it was just, I, I don't get that too often anymore. So it was nice to kind of, like, feel like I was my 13-year-old self again reading, you know, Feist and Eddings for the first time, Tolkien for the first time, being like, wow, okay, this is what a story can really do. That's right. Absolutely. So you got involved in comics, video games, uh, crashing your employer's websites with traffic. But this idea about transmedia and then Starlight Runner, when did it click to you that maybe there's a way to have these stories not be confined to one media? Because I do think, you know, we're seeing that blow up now. But knowing you and knowing your story, like, you had your finger on the pulse way before that. So like, how did you know this was coming down the pipeline? And what were kind of the steps that you took to be ahead of the curve?
1: There were uh, two factors um, that contributed to this. Um, one was um, that if I loved something, I, I wanted to uh, be surrounded by it. I wanted to, to have it more than once a year or once every few years, right? So mm-hmm. um, uh, if I loved Godzilla, there were lots of Godzilla movies, you know? Yep. And, and they'd come around every so often um, on TV, you know, maybe mm-hmm. a few times a year. Or, or once in a while, they'd even hit the movie theaters, right? Um, that was awesome. Destroy all <laughs> monsters on the big screen, right? Um, yeah. uh, the The problem was there was very little um uh else uh, affords. There was the occasional monster magazine that would have an article about uh Godzilla. Um mm-hmm. uh, and, and then there would be like the articles, the little ads in the TV guide. That you I'd cut out. You know, it was so precious to me that a, a a thumbnail-sized photo of Godzilla was something to be treasured, right? Well,
0: and you're lucky that they even had the plot right in those summaries. They wouldn't even spell the monster. Not often. Wrong. <laughs> not often. Exactly. Like, do you remember that infamous? It was that Godzilla book. It was white and orange. I don't remember who wrote it, but I remember reading it as a kid. And you can find it on eBay for hundreds of dollars because of how inaccurate it is. It has become like <laughs> this collectible. But like back then, that's all you had. So you would eat it all up, right? You're like, I'm
1: I'm, absolutely anything. That's right. That's right. And and, um, and even when the uh, licensing uh, aspect of a property was successful, like Planet of the Apes, right? Planet mm-hmm. of the Apes had. Novels. They it had a, a cartoon series. There were uh, action figures for Mego, yep. right? And and, <laughs> um, uh, and, and so I, I ate all that stuff up and thought about how those movies were interlinked and how the TV series had something to do with the movies. It really didn't. It was a, like a different timeline. <laughs> and then the cartoon had dinosaurs in it, <laughs> which yeah. made no sense at all. And and, um, and so. That was a little frustrating. You know, mm-hmm. I had to try and do mental gymnastics in order for that universe <laughs> to make sense. So we're, that, that was one uh, problem that I had mm-hmm. with, uh, w- with franchise extension, so to speak, right? Uh, but then I would enjoy uh, a Japanese uh, content, right? But, but uh, ja- the Japanese had a name for it. It was called Media Mix, Uh, So that was uh, one character or story world, Um, Mm -hmm. but there would be a TV series, there would be a prequel series, there would be a feature film, all based in the same universe, but kind of loosely connected. You know, because each medium would do a reinterpretation of the story or, or tell a different story about a side character that somewhat contradicted the events of the movie and, and so forth. And they didn't care because they were uh, oriented toward the storyteller. So this is mm-hmm. my version of the story or my version of this character. And that, that was celebrated. That was a good thing. And so they called it media mix. So my take on these two kinds of approaches to storytelling was what if we could have a universe that would be persistent across different media? What if it were the same universe, but we were uh, um, uh, learning different stories on the different media platforms? And those stories would play to the strengths of that platform. And so that's what I started experimenting with in the 90s with uh, Magic the Gathering. Um, uh, I was asked to help the uh, people who created that trading card game uh, with the universe that tied all those cards together. And um, uh, I was working with Acclaim uh, Entertainment, and we licensed Magic to do comic books, video games, and uh, uh, web content. And I I designed it. Basically, I drew a lot from my own Dungeons & Dragons universe, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what a fantasy come like true.
0: everybody's dream. Yeah, oh, my awesome. God.
1: <laughs> um, and and um, uh, I tied all those cards together. And the result um, was um, a, a story that if you were a fan and paying attention, they were all interconnected. The, the mm-hmm. games, the comics, the website... Um, uh, you know, uh, were connected. and and the core of that um, uh, 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 communication was in the relationship that I built with fans. So, uh, whenever a fan emailed me, which was still a new thing back then, and and I just let everyone have my email address because I'm crazy, um, (laughs) I'd talk to them. I'd say, "So, what do you think? So, what's you know, uh, uh, let's talk about the lore and and stuff like that." And they went nuts. They went crazy. They loved it so much. Oh my god, the storyteller is actually talking to me, Um, and and that relationship created helped to create these ardent fans. Hmm. And those fans, you know, uh, uh, hang out to this day talking about uh, those, those old stories. Yeah. Um, uh, so, the, the, it all fell into place for me when I understood that transmedia storytelling involves an architecture for dialogue. Um, hmm. that, that the storyteller was not just responsible for communicating the story, but for looking into the eyes of the audience and engaging them and and making sure that they felt validated and celebrated for participating in the story world.
0: Yeah, and I've got to imagine the communication back then would have been a little different obviously than it is now where it's a lot more it's kind of like lightning paced, right? You don't have to wait for that reply. You know, you're out doing stuff, you're probably coming home, then checking your emails, which I'm not saying one's necessarily better than the other, but it's a much different dynamic, right? And sure. I can imagine it being more substantive where you're like, okay, I may have one shot to send an email to this guy. So like, I'm going to put all my thoughts in here or whatever the case may be. But that that is awesome to hear that. It is that dialogue, right? It's not just a, hey, here's my idea, but you're inviting people into this act of creation as well. Or maybe you're not like taking people's ideas, but in hearing their thoughts and their concerns or even their their praises. You're able to tweak and adjust as need be. Absolutely. So we work with Magic, which is awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. I have numerous friends who will geek out hearing that. But how... So, you know, the origin of Starlight Runner. Like, starting your own enterprise, your own company. Like, walk me through that experience. Like, how, you know starting a company is a big deal, right? So, you know, how did that uh, affect your family? How did that, like, what were the thoughts running through your head? How did you land some of these deals? Because, you know, you go to Starlight Runner's website, you know, you're seeing names like Halo, Avatar, Coca-Cola, and then obviously I know Ultraman. So, like, yeah, walk us through that because it's not just, we don't want to just talk about, obviously, this, the transmedia is amazing, but we want to hear about the actual nuts and bolts as well.
1: Sure, sure. And um, uh, I don't tell the story too often, but it's it wasn't easy. <laughs> um, so what had happened was we're in the late 1990s, and um, uh, I, I did uh, a Turok Dinosaur Hunter uh, for the Nintendo 64. Oh, I see yes, you, you recognize yes. the name.
0: Was it the go. first or the second one where you could be the monkey running around in multiplayer? I do <laughs> That was so much. I think much. actually
1: it's the third. Um <laughs> to be the monkey you have to that was number three. Okay. Um, I couldn't. But remember. um uh yeah, I, I did I w- I was most heavily involved with Tarok and Tarok 2, Seeds of Evil. Um and um uh, uh, you know that was a, a proto uh, effort at, at Transmedia, where the mm-hmm. comics already existed, and there was a, we create a little website with some lore and the game, and then magic happened, and um, and I started earning some money. Um, uh, so at, at that point, um, I wanted to uh, become you know try my hand at filmmaking. Uh, so I I used my money, which was not smart to To make a movie, okay, <laughs> um, and uh, it was called Red Light August, and and um, it, it it cost a lot more money than I thought it would.
0: <laughs> I feel like that's the uh, trend, right? It never <laughs> is under budget.
1: That that was it was shot in thirty five millimeter. Um, oh, uh, awesome! And, and, you know, and the DP was the uh, Derek Wan who had shot um, uh, some of the Jet Li films in Hong Kong. He he came over to to, uh, the United States and shot my film. It was uh, beautiful to look at, Uh, uh, you know, but um, it took a long time to make and, and the everything uh, we gambled everything on showing it at the, um, in park city during the Sundance film festival. It it didn't Mm -hmm. make it into Sundance, but there are a lot of other festivals going on at the same time. And, and somebody cool saw it, the, um, uh, uh, a new um, uh, agency in Hollywood, and, um, and they loved it and asked me to come to uh, Los Angeles to become a, a filmmaker. And um, <laughs> <That's> an <awesome laughs> that was uh, 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 incredible. And th- I flew straight to L.A. and immediately got a crash course in the horrors of Hollywood. Um, (laughs) so, um, you know, I, it was going to be impossible to do anything that I really wanted to do. Yeah. Um, uh, but I became intrigued by some of the, um, uh, technology plays that were going on at the time in Los Angeles and, um, and felt that some people were missing the mark as far as, as the internet was concerned. Mm. Uh, Everyone was trying to copy, uh, Napster. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. um, and I knew that was not going to work. Um, and, uh, so, um, so I, I kept advocating for web-based experiences. Uh, um, I felt we could create these kinds of Dungeons and Dragons-style games, uh, hmm. I- interacting between ourselves and and the audience, and and have participative narratives, these kind of mm. collective journey uh, 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 storylines. And um, uh, everyone thought I was crazy, like out of my mind, um, uh, I, until I came across one group that, uh, that said, you know what, that's kind of interesting. We're going to invest, uh, you know, in your endeavor. Um, so I, I said, well, invest, why don't, why don't you build it and I'll just come and work it. And, and they were like, it doesn't work that way. You know, <laughs> you're the one with the plan. The idea, you've developed right? software before. Um, uh, you know, you have the intellectual property that can work. You have story mm-hmm. worlds in, in your mind. So you have to do it. Um, uh, and that involved forming a, a company and taking mm-hmm. on venture capital. Um, that was not an easy thing to do because I, I didn't, I, I had no education in business mm-hmm. <laughs> and finance. Um, but I had a tremendous uh, support system. So, so my wife and, and friends, said, go do it, and, yeah. and then pay us, and we'll be your employees. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did. Uh, and, yeah. um, and they gave us the money, and we started to build the software that could have made that happen, proprietary uh, uh, software. And we were um, ready to launch our demo Uh, In September of 2001. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we could not (laughs) because my office was located in downtown Manhattan (laughs) in September of 2001. And yeah. (laughs) Um, And on September 14th, 2001, um, my financiers said, you know what? we're not going to do this anymore. And, um, and we were stuck. Um, you know, uh, I had spent everything. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we were in an office that needed to be, you know, the, the rent needed to still be paid and, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the world had completely changed in an instant and it was super, super tough.
0: Yeah. I I was thinking, I was like, the date made sense. I was like, Oh, you're in California. No, No,
1: I'm a New York boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what, what I did was I I told everybody, hold on as long as you can, let's figure Mm -hmm. this out. And, um, um, and, and I said to, to my team, we have to stop for a minute and and help the city, help people., yeah. um, uh, especially children. Uh, I had been a school teacher and um, and you know how I feel about the power of story. Mm-hmm. And I knew quickly that what could happen here was that um, uh, fear can turn into anger and um, and that we could uh, become. A polarized people, and mm-hmm. um, and it, we can fall into eternal war, and that has an impact on children. So, um, uh, I called the board of education and said, "You know, Starlight Runner at your service." And mm-hmm. because I had been a teacher, they called us in, and we did a tour of elementary schools uh, and junior high schools across the city to talk about story and to talk about optimism. And, um, and how uh, our stories and our diversity uh, will uh, see us through this uh, crisis. Um, and um, uh, that was wonderful. It was uh, heart-wrenching because some of those mm-hmm. children had lost family members uh, at, at 9-11, at the Ground Zero. Um, but you know what? Um, a, a journalist uh, wrote a story about what we were doing. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, a, a woman, an executive at Mattel, uh, read the story because it got picked up uh, by the Associated Press. Yeah. And uh, she called the office and, and said, uh, I, I'm looking for Gomez. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and she, it turns out she was one of my old bosses at a claim. And oh, she man. said, we have this thing called Hot Wheels. Um, so can you do for Hot Wheels what you did for Turok? <laughs> it's the 35th anniversary of Hot Wheels coming up. Uh, you know, uh, and, um, and boy, it saved our bacon. Uh, That's awesome. The, the, the team got together. And we began to practice for the first time in a concerted fashion with mm-hmm. a very large company. Transmedia storytelling around the Hot Wheels brand, and that was our first, uh, uh, you know, implementation at uh, at Starlight Runner. We we have not stopped working since.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting because I do remember seeing something on the website about Hot Wheels, but again, that wouldn't really be like in my head the first thing I would think about when it comes to transmedia. But I do remember. Mm-hmm. I think it was in the late 90s. It was like Hot Wheels Turbo Racing, as I was looking I remember that (laughs) game. Um, So, like, what did that look like? Like, how did you guys come up with uh, stories and ideas for Hot Wheels? Because, again, we're not talking about, you know, for me, Turok is meaningful because I grew up with that. Most people probably like, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, But what about, I mean, like, you know, Halo and Avatar? Like, obviously, people know there's a story behind those. But Hot Wheels, I mean... That was just something I grew up playing with on the tracks and all that. So how did you come up with something engaging and meaningful here?
1: Um, the, uh, what, what occurred with Mattel became the prototype for how we deal with all uh, intellectual property. Um, uh, Hot Wheels, uh, first and foremost in the eyes of Mattel uh, uh, as a toy company, was a brand. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first question we asked is, what is the meaning of this brand? What is the difference between Hot Wheels toys and, I don't know, Matchbox, Johnny Lightning, Corgi? (laughs) What's the difference? (laughs) And and guess what? There is a difference. You know, there's an attitude. You know, Mm -hmm. in fact, there were um, uh, four signifier words. Speed, power, performance, and attitude. Uh, a sure. Hot Wheels car is almost a magical thing. It defies the laws of physics, right? It, it goes on those crazy tracks and, and so forth. There's something unique about a Hot Wheels car. And, um, a, and so the story that needs to be told of, about those cars, um, uh, you know, needed to reflect that essence, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and from there, it was a confluence of of two things um one was where are we um as a world as a planet it's 2002 there's a problem here so that's where i come in as an author you know mm-hmm. um uh, the problem that needs to be addressed is we are used to wanting to be the winner of our race um but we need to be a team Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and there's they wanted 36 cars to be in the story. <laughs> so I had a big team uh, no, to, you didn't to have deal Lightning
0: with. Lightning McQueen to lean on
1: <laughs> No, uh, but we created our own uh, guy for Wheeler. And, um, awesome. and and then all of the the cars, this would be the story of of a race that became mm-hmm. uh, a, a unified a bunch of people trying to solve a problem together. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and that was, so that was the, 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 the big picture theme, right? And then the, um, uh, the, the more um, uh, uh, subtle and, and personal uh, uh, theme w- would be, um, you know, based on uh, my fantasy, of of what it'd be like to race around the world, so I was inspired yeah. by Speed Racer and by um, a, you know crazy tracks going through all these realms and and different uh, fantastical settings that were like the toys and and, and so forth, and um, and I just pitched the whole thing to Mattel, and they said, "Wow, okay," and 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 and, and then my understanding of technology kicked in and I said, you know, we don't just have to do comics and website stuff mm-hmm. you have um, a uh, animation company that makes Barbie videos <laughs> huh. you know and yeah. so we could do Hot Wheels cartoons and and they said no 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 no, uh, too expensive you know it's that we didn't sign up for that just make mm-hmm. your comic books and, and I said, well actually, um, uh, I am un- I am used to being able to repurpose uh, digital assets because of the video game work that i uh, that i did all, all mainframe entertainment has to do is show me a list of established assets and i'll build the hot wheels universe out of those assets all they'll have to do is give them a paint job <laughs> and and uh, and you can have a cartoon for you know a third of the price that you usually pay for doing one from scratch and mm-hmm. they said We'll take one of those. (laughs) And suddenly I was writing and and producing uh, an animated series. Wow. That's crazy.
0: Yeah, Hot Wheels. I mean, but then I think about it and I'm like, yeah, I know Matchbox is a company, but I'm always thinking of Hot Wheels. Like, you know, my son, he's got his cars, Uh, Mm -hmm. whether they're the regular ones, the Star Wars or the Mario ones, and they're all Hot Wheels. It's all Mattel, you know, and you had a hand in that. So that's awesome. Well,
1: a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> that um, that franchise lasted for a, a, a little over 10 years, um, yeah. uh, variations on those characters in that universe. That's um, so so cool. it, it worked as a, a transmedia franchise.
0: Yeah. So let, let's, let's think about it from a different context then. So, you know, my, my sweet spot, my connection with you pun intended is you work with Ultraman and the Ultraman connection. So, I thought it's interesting comparing this to, you know, you've got your Hot Wheels and, you know, um, you've done Halo and stuff like that. So what is it like taking a franchise from Japan and then marketing Mm -hmm. it to a completely different culture, you know, being the United States and, you know, I'm assuming it's been a, it will, it will be a push elsewhere as well. But like, you know, you're not only having to market a different demographic, but you're making sure that you're not compromising the story as well. That's right. Because right? that's huge, because obviously the values and the principles that, you know, E.G. Tsuburaya and everyone else had in creating these series is much different than how most people would approach creating a show here in the United States. That's so right. as you've been involved in that, not necessarily making the shows, but making sure that the the ethos of Ultraman is carried from one place to another. What kind of challenges and difficulties have you had in making sure that isn't lost in translation? Again, pun intended.
1: Well, David, I love how you shaped the conversation because everything uh, gets tied up in in Ultraman. Um, uh, think of it this way: uh, in in so many ways, I prepared all my life for it. Right? Um, I I grew up cherishing, uh, you know, tokusatsu. Tokusatsu mm-hmm. is the uh, the, a, a certain type of uh, movie that's that's done in Japan that uses special effects that are practical. Um, uh, so the illusion that you're seeing of the special effects is created through the use of miniatures and people in monster suits or superhero suits and and, and things like that. And and um, and there is a delicacy, a detail. Uh, to mm-hmm. uh, the work, the craftsmanship that goes into it, to create the illusion that monsters are stomping through giant cities and and, and things like that, and there's a a wonder to it, a beauty uh, uh, to it that is, um, you know, kind of in a way, it's it was breathtaking back then, and it's now it's breathtaking now because we're so used to seeing pixels dance around mm-hmm. on the st- screen oh, yeah. you know any avengers movie is really kind of an animated <laughs> motion picture <laughs> wow. with a few minutes of human beings walking around in it um you Captain know Captain
0: america is a disney princess
1: yep there you go well something like that and um <laughs> and, and and when but when you are watching to this day an ultraman show there's a dude in a suit <laughs> rolling yep. around on the floor with a monster, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, and um, uh, you know there's a there's an awesomeness to that. Anyway, so so the um, in some ways there there is an equivalent to Hot Wheels because here is a property that's kind of old, kind of dusty. Um, uh, mm. that's been knocked off many, many times, right? You've got your Power Rangers and your Pacific mm-hmm. Rim and your Transformers. All of these things were were built on the shoulders of Ultraman, which is a story about a big silver dude from space who comes to Earth to beat up giant monsters um, uh, yeah. that are menacing uh, mankind. So, uh, so here you have, you know, so what's special about Ultraman, you know? Um, and it's so funny because just like with Hot Wheels, they said, well, there's, there's, there's three things, um, a courage, hope, and kindness. Courage, hope, and kindness. Three words. And, and I'm like, well, um, uh, I could have guessed. Uh, and, and that's that, you know, in, in the, in, in, leveraging the opportunity because of they invited me to Japan, but they didn't give me the job. I had to earn yeah. the job once oh, I yeah. got there. you know um, and and, uh, and uh, you know so I was able to to take my adoration for the the concept, uh, but turn my expertise mm-hmm. on the concept. So so what a delight to be able to look at my favorite one of my favorite things in the universe, and, and apply my trade to it, and, and take it apart, gently, <laughs> uh, see that there is courage, hope, and kindness in it, but also to be able to show Tsuburaya, look how special this is. Look mm-hmm. how unique this is. Ultraman is an evergreen brand in Japan for a reason. There are elements of, of Ultraman which are which make him like Spider-Man or Superman, uh, you know, a timeless uh, a character there. What if we were able to take that essence and cause it to resonate? Remember what I talked, uh, mm-hmm. told you about with regard to Hot Wheels and resonating with the times and, and so forth? Uh, uh, let's let Ultraman resonate with the uh, with the world as it is today which sure needs a lot of courage, hope, and kindness. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <for laughs> um, sure. uh, and, and, and have its cosmology uh, adapted to a contemporary sensibility, and you're going to have something wonderful and unique. Um, and, um, and they said, wow, okay, give it a shot, Gomez. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and of course, the first people we went to uh, from there was Marvel Comics because mm-hmm. the editor in chief, C.B. Sabolsky, um, loved uh, Tokusatsu and um, and he loved uh, uh, my take on on it and said, "Let's make some comic books." Um, once Marvel says yes, everything else gets a little bit easier. Uh, <laughs> and some deals were made with Netflix, and yeah. um, and suddenly Ultraman is a a, a global pop culture phenomena.
0: Yeah, it's it's absolutely ridiculous to me that I can go to Target now and find Ultraman stuff, and I'm like, Super what is awesome. going on here? What is going on here?
1: But but let me tell you the the architecture for dialogue. The, the you know, the, uh, Hollywood doesn't let us do it that much. You, mm-hmm. you know, they go, ah, fans, they let leave them alone. They're off on their own. It can only be trouble <laughs> yeah. dealing with fans. The Japanese. Uh, uh didn't mind uh, our mm-hmm. our ability to reach out to fans so i i formed a company called iceberg theory which is a yep. kind of sister company to starlight runner um and um and they created uh, these virtual events and mm-hmm. and these um uh, live stream uh, uh shows that uh fans can come to to actually talk and interact directly with the stars of the show uh, and to watch uh, a stage fight between so the ultras and, and the kaiju, and, uh, and just have terrific fun and talk to each other and talk to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and they, there's a deep affection in, in that fan base, uh, which has helped to light up uh, uh, thousands and then th- tens of thousands and now millions of fans. Yeah. Um, uh, so again, those were techniques that were born out of email, Around mm-hmm. Turok and Magic: The Gathering, and um, and now they're being used to uh, uh, to light the fire for an entire uh, global entertainment franchise.
0: It's it's interesting you mention the difference between like Hollywood and interacting with fans compared to uh, like Suburaya or uh, Toho, for example. Because I think back to like a lot of the Godzilla films towards the seventies and eighties. They would no. get scripts from fans, right? They would have contests to be like, who would come up with this script? And they would use it and they would bring people on. And like, that's just something you would never hear about here, right? I just, I, no. if, if it happens, <laughs> you don't hear about it at all. Sure. Um, so I kind of wanted to touch on a little bit about film before we get into technology and social media and close it out. Sure. But so it, it's kind of together here because I, I do think there is some, some overlap. I've thought about there's just a change in storytelling. So from being a musician, I have noticed that the way songs are written, it appeals to the streaming demographic, right? You want to hook the person in the first five, 10 seconds, because you know, that's about as much attention span as you've got before they're going to move on to the next track if they don't like it. Right. And I feel like, movies and TV shows now that streaming has become the go-to way to you know, release everything I feel like maybe storytelling is changing there at least in the west I'm thinking about like you look at like Ultraman for example going back like I feel like it's the same show it's been since you know there's <laughs> there's variations but I don't ever I haven't seen a major shift there but you know you're looking at for example you know like Stranger Things right that came out season 4 and it, whether it's good or bad, you have episodes that are two hours long. You yep. wouldn't have that on a normal TV syndication route where you have not. everything based off of, okay, the commercial breaks and everything. You, it, you were tied to that format. Again, sure. for better or for worse. But I, I, I ran into a quote that you shared on LinkedIn, and it, it stuck with me because of the CERN word. So you said the best movies of the past decade, and you're talking about the Russo brothers, were created out of friction. That word right there when it comes to technology is super important to me. So the best movies of the past decade were created out of friction, the assertion of limitations, and the questioning eye of studio heads who have a fundamental understanding of character and story. So my question for you is do you think the removal of limitations, whether it's the set 23 minute episode structure that we've had or 47 or whatever it is for an hour long episode mm-hmm. or not having to worry about releasing to theaters or whatever. How do you feel like that's changed storytelling? Because I kind of agree with you. you talked about the gray man where I didn't bother watching that, but even just <laughs> reading cursory reviews, I'm like, Compared to, for example, Prey that just came out recently, there's, there's no comparison in regards to what Dan Trachtenberg has in mind for telling a story compared to what we're getting, it seems like, incessantly from Netflix and Hulu and everyone else.
1: <laughs> wow, that is a specific question, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. That's awesome. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, um, uh, it's something I've given a lot of thought to. You know, we, we, um, it, it, with regard to format and, and how uh, uh, stories are told in general, I love the, uh, effect, the idea that um, streaming has allowed for variations, that we, mm-hmm. we can tell stories as long as, as they need to be told as opposed to being forced into a 22- or 44-minute block yeah, um, uh, although great content was was made under those uh, circumstances over the course of years with television and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, my concern um, is something that I've experienced uh, uh, directly, and I'm going to name names and uh, you know, be forthright mm-hmm. about it. There was a time where um, uh, the comic book company I worked for, um, was was given a cash infusion, and the edict was go out and get the best uh, uh, artists and writers you can to reboot the Valiant Universe. Hmm. Y- you know, um, a- and it was a lot of cash. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, what they did uh, was uh, these were my bosses. They ran mm-hmm. out and um, and grabbed. Uh, the biggest names in the industry. Now, those names were busy with Marvel and DC Comics, um, uh, so they said, "Look, you, you know, go away." And they said, <laughs> but "Look at this pile of cash," and and so the answer was, "You know what? I'll take your pile of cash, but you can't tell me anything about what it is that I'm going to do." Okay? So, I'm going to take your character and make the character into the character I want the character to be. Uh. Okay? And, and uh, even that was okay. What, what stopped being okay from my perception, and I didn't have a say in the matter yeah. um, at the time, was that, um, that nobody cared about how these characters were supposed to exist in the same universe. Mm -hmm. um uh, nobody cared about uh the laws of physics (laughs) nobody cared about the cosmology of of things um and and, um and so they all did whatever they felt like doing and in some cases what they felt like doing was phoning it in (laughs) Uh right um you give me all this money i'm a genius i'm gonna give you a, a a comic book of that you know kind of hinges on my whim. No no other comic book company allowed me to tell the story I want to tell here. I'm just going to tell it. And you have nothing to say about it. Um, yep. When I tried to say something about it, because I was an editor at the time, mm-hmm. I they narked me out. And, and my boss called me in and said, you got to shut up. <laughs> that guy mm. is is the biggest guy in the business. And he's telling the story he's going to tell. And yeah. I said, you know, the story that he's telling makes no sense, <laughs> particularly within the context of this greater universe. And mm-hmm. they said, just do what he wants. Yeah. And and the, it almost immediately fell apart. David, it, it's it's no good. It's no good when when there is no um, uh, uh, friction. When when the you know a, po- a popular storyteller. Is told do whatever you feel like doing, and, and there's no question at all uh, about it. That's gonna it could yield something amazing, but if it's within the context of a greater work or the start of something new, and nobody asks some questions, you're you got a problem. It's yeah. it's not going to work out. That's what's what happened uh, with uh, with the big streamers, and it's not just Netflix. It was Amazon. Uh, and, uh, you know, Hulu and and so forth. They they pushed mountains of cash at, at these uh, fabulous uh, creators, and the creators mm. either did something that was pretty awesome but rarefied and not that many people watched, or <laughs> they blew up a lot of stuff, <laughs> yeah. like uh, uh, our, our friends the Russos did, and a lot of people watched but then immediately forgot that forgot. it exists mm-hmm. yep. uh, yeah. and, and that's that's what you have to be careful of you, you know you you need um, a structure mm-hmm. into which you're telling the story A, a, a novelist needs an editor you know um, uh, and and a lot of people hate on studios and studio heads but Kevin Feige Mm -hmm. knows how to tell a story Kevin Feige understands narrative design and that's how we got the Marvel cinematic universe
0: yeah yeah and that's and that's what's crazy right is you have someone that is calling the shots and he's setting those limitations and maybe it's just this individualistic mentality a lot of us have but like limitations actually provide freedom because if if properly set It's like, hey, this is what's good and this is what's bad. And you tend to feel more free when you're not doing the bad things, right? When you know, hey, if I go this route, not a great idea, right? And even in literature, you know, I I read something here recently, and I know I'm going to butcher her name. Uh, Ursula Kale, is it Le Le Guin? Le Guin, okay. So Mm -hmm. it was a a piece talking about her book, um, The Word for World is Forest. And she had mentioned how the way that she wrote her characters, she just wasn't happy with it at the end because she had a character that was pure evil, right? And she didn't actually allow herself to do what she normally does, which is to give her characters a little bit of nuance and humanity, etc. She was just so in the moment that by the time the context of the Vietnam War was over, that character held no more weight because it was so defined by that moment and so unrealistic. Um, so again, it makes me just think of like when you have editors and you have producers, etc., setting these limitations and adding some friction in there to keep the writers and everyone else in check and vice versa, right? The director needs to be held in check too. But like those limitations can help give us some of the best, quality we can in the same way that if you're in a gym working out that friction you feel means you're building muscle right you know friction is not a a bad thing like we're supposed to when we experience these things it means something's happening and i feel like we tend to shy away from that um yeah so i i I could go on about that for a while Uh, no (laughs) i i would tell
1: every audience member uh that you have that that the word that I heard most frequently across my entire career was no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you can't can't do it, can't be done, can't happen. Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so forth. Um, you know, and and the the response re- was rarely to to completely give up. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I took responsibility for uh, a- attempting to communicate my idea more clearly or or in such a way that it would be understood or or in such a way that people would understand the advantage that would be gained by what mm-hmm. it is that that I was thinking about and sometimes you know m- more often than not it worked yeah and that f- so that's friction that's that's mm-hmm. th- them telling me no and me going have you looked at it this way? What about this? You know, what do you want? Uh, Here's how, what I'm talking about will get you what you want. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. All right. Well, I'll give you one shot. If you fail, you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, think about it. How, so whether
0: you're a software engineer or you're a writer, How often is your first draft ever the best one or even a sales pitch, right? It's very rarely your first draft is your best one. That friction helps you refine, helps you reevaluate. And sometimes you're like, Oh my God, this is a horrible idea. I should not go through with this. Right. But if someone wouldn't have said no and you went through, you would either crash and burn or look like an absolute idiot, which I mean, I do that a lot on my own, so I probably need some more friction. (laughs) You're talking about getting that no. And that actually got me thinking about the next topic I would like to touch on, which is social media and your time, which I was not aware of, uh, on the social dilemma. Uh, so I don't know how oh, much boy. you can talk about that. <laughs> uh, obviously, I don't want you to get too, too thick in the weeds, but my, my main point that I want to touch on is I know you had a differing of opinion, um, with how that documentary was taken, but. My question for you is, do you think we are past the point of no return with social media, with technology, with the way that, again, talking about media, right? You know, everything seems to be streaming now. Uh, we're getting to the point where people would rather download, uh, I guess, in a sense, you're a an extended rental of a movie compared to like physical discs and everything else. So. Yeah, with the social dilemma, it seems like you had kind of a differing opinion there. Um, but like, what's kind of your stance on where we're at with technology? Because you and I, we've stayed sure. in touch via social media. I'm of thankful course. for that. But do you think, like, what what's kind of your your thoughts on where we're at?
1: Let's have a go. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's um, <laughs> look, you know, um, the the development of social media played into my hopes and dreams for how uh, uh, humanity can be interconnected um, uh, dating back to that trash 80 if you remember mm-hmm. so um, uh, so I was happy and and there were indications uh, relatively early on that um, uh, that positive things can happen whether they were AOL chat rooms <laughs> where you can get together with like-minded people <laughs> Fetishists, I guess, <laughs> or um, <laughs> or or later on when um, <laughs> when you had the Arab Spring, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and um, uh, I was hugely encouraged by that. Uh, I was warned by people like my one of my creative partners, Fabian who who is a cynic, said, "You know, humanity is going to find a way to screw this up." <laughs> And I said, no, no, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's good. They screwed it up. Um, uh, So, you know, but what, um, what happened is that um, it became uh, a a narrative, uh, uh, you know, a narrative was something that we used to lean back and enjoy, Mm -hmm. you, you know, uh, we didn't have the capability to uh, broadcast our personal stories, and and what what turned out to happen was, in effect, this this kind of hero's journey uh, mentality. Um, you, you have, um, uh, 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 you know, I'd studied Joseph Campbell since even before uh, uh, George Lucas uh, popularized uh, mm-hmm. the. He's like a he was a, a researcher into mythology and had come up with the uh, notion of the monomyth, uh, yeah. uh, the, the hero's journey, um, and uh, discussed it on Bill Moyers in uh, 1980. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, uh, you know, there is, there is something to what uh, Campbell, he's, he's no longer in, in fashion right now, but um, uh, there's something to it. You, you know, this cyclical uh, notion that is implanted in, in the human mind that has to do with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, being summoned out into the world to accomplish something and bring back that treasure so that you can, uh, uh, you know, feed your family or, or you know, bolster your community, uh, yep. your nation, uh, what have you. That's, you know, that's innate within all of us. Uh, but, The process of doing that, David, um, is the process of, you know, learning and then asserting rightness. And the problem with social media is that we are now, every one of us, storytellers. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in telling our stories, we're generally the hero on that journey. And uh, we generally skip the part where we gain the wisdom (laughs) and just start asserting our rightness. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And if we all assert our rightness on each other's wrongness, we get chaos. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, and, and we are vulnerable to attack because there are all kinds of mechanisms in place to uh, cause us to think that um, uh, there's a lot of wrong out there. Um, and um, uh, you know a lot of that is illusory and um, and it, it's fracturing us. it's it's breaking us apart. Um, I started talking with a group of people that included Tristan Harris mm-hmm. uh, 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 some years back about this problem and about the fact that it, it's a genuine danger. Um, it could lead to polarization. It could cause violence between people, uh, you know, even within the same country. Um, and um, uh, uh, Tristan and I uh, talked a lot about that. He uh, felt that Facebook was just, you know, terrible. It was, mm-hmm. it was uh, super bad. And, um, and he made a, a documentary uh, called The Social Dilemma, which uh, I think to this day is on Netflix. Um, and uh, and so I consulted a bit on the, the documentary, but I started to get concerned that the uh, the, the documentary was so hell bent on on declaring you know these social media platforms evil um, that it was doing the very thing <laughs> uh, uh, that that I was concerned about with mm-hmm. regard to the assertion of rightness on wrongness. Um, uh, you know, don't don't smash the tool to pieces. Uh, suggest uh, a methodology, ways uh, for us to uh, uh, use the tools better. Yeah. And and I said, would you please include that? You know, suggest solutions. Uh, uh, give us hope. Give us a place to go. Uh, and he didn't want to do that. He um, uh, uh, he said, "No, you know that's not the purpose of this documentary. Mm-hmm. It is what it is." And I said, oh, you know, you know, "Knock yourself out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Go do it. Um, you, you know." And it it has done a, a lot of good. I I think. Mm-hmm. We, I just uh, that's it's not my way. Uh, if yeah. I'm going to point out a problem, it behooves me to suggest either suggest a solution or or call for mm-hmm. a solution by the audience, by, by the people that I'm telling the story to, uh, yeah. inclusive of Mark Zuckerberg um, and, uh, and the other people who are running these social media uh, platforms. Does that make sense?
0: It absolutely does. And that's the tricky thing, I feel like, with social media and just technology in general. You know, I I try to have that conversation on my LinkedIn pretty regularly. Just this idea of a tool is not just a tool, right? You know, we think about like, you know, for example, a scythe. This is something I've seen in a lot of writing here recently where people would be like, well, yeah, a scythe is just a tool. But I'm like, it's a physical activity, right? It's a very specific way of gathering grass and hay and whatnot. and Mm -hmm. um, And as these tools have been replaced there are things that happen to us as well, including a lack of activity, right? So now, you know, you could harvest the hay and whatnot, and you're sitting in a tractor, and you're doing your own thing. And not only have you removed yourself from the physical activity, but now you're actually potentially causing damage to the land because of the tires, the oil, and everything else. So it's not like this inherent one-to-one, oh, nothing's changed. So I say that because talking about social media reform is super tough. You know, you have people like Nicholas Carr. He had a piece on the New Atlantis here earlier this year. Uh, he tried to present some ideas. Uh, I've got a book on my bookshelf I'm looking at right now by a guy named Chris Bale called Breaking the Social Media Prism. You know, mm. he tried to talk about uh, the polarization. Um, I mean, people are just writing book after book after book, you know, TED Talk after TED Talk. And <laughs> it's, it's hard to figure out what to do because like you and I have talked about elsewhere, like you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Right. I mean, you know, you have Marshall McLuhan, you know, back in the sixties was talking about the global village. You know, he's talked about how, you know, after a century of electric technology, we have extended our central nervous system itself in a global embrace abolishing both space and time, as far as our planet is concerned. You know, that was back in 64 in his book, understanding media, you know, that idea of a central nervous system, like to go back, that's just such a painful image, right. Of rewiring your nervous system. Yes, it's not yes. easy. So I guess my, my, uh, how I'd like to close out here is what, what suggestions do you have for people? Whether, you know, cause obviously you're running your business and you're staying involved in the Ultraman community, you know, online, social media, mm. all this stuff. It's so like, what have you done to help curtail some of those negative effects that are unfortunately baked into how uh, these websites are now. And even maybe in a moment of vulnerability, sharing like things that you've noticed, maybe people have had to point out to you, but like taking those steps to rectify it. Cause you know, at the end of the day, like the most important thing to you is your family and your, 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 you know, the people who are very tangible there. And I, I get concerned when I see people that, their lives deteriorate because of what they do online, right? Whether it's how much time they spend online, the fighting that they have, (laughs) all that stuff. And I think we all kind of need that gut check at this point in our lives. So any advice you have would be awesome. (laughs)
1: Um, Look, um, you know, the, a a part of what I do is, is, um, is to think about the impact of story on the world. And um, and once in a while, story does something good. Um, We we um, uh, we decide that um, uh, too many people are dying in car crashes, so we start telling Mm -hmm. stories across multiple media about using our safety belts. Right? Um, uh, You know, uh, cigarettes have been curtailed by telling stories in all kinds of different ways uh, about the the dangers of, of cigarettes. Uh, entire our society, uh, I credit Norman Lear, the, um, uh, the guy who made a bunch of comedies in the early 1970s, uh, All in the Family, Good Times, Maud, mm-hmm. The Jeffersons, with, <laughs> with creating a, a bunch of TV shows that, that uh, allowed for, uh, you know, funny but pointed discussions about social ills, um, mm-hmm. racism and, and uh, uh, sexism. Uh, feminism uh, as a positive, um, you know, th- that was that allowed for us to start talking about those things when they were really kind of not allowed. You know, they were verboten in in, in polite society. So, um, you know, we um, were obliged to uh, uh, to tell these stories and, um, and and keep it going. So, so when. When it's when it's my turn uh, to uh, to do something, I I sometimes consult with uh, with governments uh, about um, uh, the implementation of narratives that are unifying uh, and progressive. You know, Mm -hmm. how can we push back at corruption, at crime, at violence? How can we um, uh, uh, create reconciliation? so that mm. people who have been alienated from the rest of society uh, can, you know, work better uh, with it, become more successful uh, either within it or beside it <laughs> in some cases, yeah. it, you know. Um, uh, and um, and what I've learned was that it, it does me no good to uh, uh, sit down and start arguing with with somebody with the with oppositional thoughts mm-hmm. you know um uh so the 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 trick i've learned <laughs> is uh, is the same trick that got me uh from no to yes which is so wh- what are what are you interested in what are your underlying values what is, what is your brand essence david <laughs> you know <laughs> give me those three words those three or yeah, four right. words right because once I know those words, I can speak to those which I agree mm-hmm. with. Everybody agrees with with certain underlying fundamental values, certain deep rooted desires. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, uh, so instead of fighting you, I, I'm going to invite you to join me to head there. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, uh, and it may involve some some compromise here and there but you cannot argue with the with with the final uh, result and and that's um that that's what dolly parton does man <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's real that's why yeah. that's why we all love spider-man everybody mm-hmm. loves spider-man <laughs> right um he stands for certain things fundamental yeah. values that we aspire to um, you know, and and that's that's the the trick um if you if you see what I'm saying that's that's yeah. how um I, I um you know, I tell stories and and allow for people to join me in the mm-hmm. storytelling
0: yeah that and that's so good. I just I know personally the difficulty of doing that with social media is I, I think about it this way. So I would talk to you right now in a way that's different. than then I talk to my wife, then I talk to my son, then I talk to my mm-hmm. daughter. And it's not that I'm being a different person. It's just, you're talking to people differently because we play roles. People,
1: we, we yeah. it's natural.
0: Mm-hmm. It is. So then it's like, how do you talk to potentially 10,000 people when you have a social media profile with that many people reading? Because you're definitely not <laughs> going to be able, it, it's, you know, you can't address every single person individually, nope. right? And sometimes I feel like we don't think about it like that. We're just like, this is me, and if you don't like it, I'm like, there is such thing as tact and gracefulness. You know, yeah, sometimes you got to leave that behind, but I also think not so much on social media, but that (laughs) is the difficulty is knowing how to properly utilize that voice. Um, But I also think, and I'm curious to hear what you think here, is I feel like a lot of our problem gets into what Neil Postman talks about with information glut. Right, we are at a point in history where you can have almost an infinite amount of knowledge, but how often does that get converted into actual like wisdom? Right, where you know you could, right. y- you could know what like for example, I know that the average weight of a Goliath grouper goes anywhere from about four to five hundred pounds. Right, my son and I have been really into fishing lately. Does <laughs> that really serve? any proper good except for the fact that when I talked to my son, and he was like, is there a grouper in that lake being scared? I'm like, no, because first of all, it's a saltwater fish. And second, no, <laughs> there's not a 400 pound fish in that lake that we're about to fish in. But <laughs> but there's so much that we know that doesn't actually benefit us and it doesn't benefit the way that we communicate and walk alongside one another. So how do you work to counteract that? Because we all, I mean, if you spend five minutes on any social media platform, you're going to learn a hundred different things. And like, how do you process all that? How do you sort all that out? How do you figure out the stuff that you just need to offload and never come back to?
1: Sure. Cause it's exhausting. Sure. Here's how I'm going to tell you how David and everybody <laughs> listening. Here's how, um, you have to learn how to calm yourself mm-hmm. and open your mind and be prepared to hold something loathsome <laughs> in your heart and in your mind and just be cool. Just be cool with it. Um, uh, and, and here's why. Um, if, if we stop talking to people who think differently from us um, and, and who are angry, you know, um, if we stop talking to them, we're going to be in big trouble. That's how wars start, man. That's how people start really genuinely hurting themselves because they'll mm-hmm. start to dehumanize us and we'll start to dehumanize them. So we need to hear them out and, and, um, and, and holding that first thought that they give to you, which is in your mind a terrible thought, um, uh, just relax and let the two thoughts, yours and theirs, just kind of chill for a minute. Because what you're really looking for is why is this person in pain? What, is, what, what do they think there is being taken away from them? What is the scarcity element that is in their, their hearts and minds? Because if we can address that, if we can understand why, um, uh, we can diffuse the, the anger. Uh, and and address um, uh, the the reality of the situation. Sometimes we can't, and that's okay. But yeah. but uh, what can then happen is is that that they will acknowledge your ability to listen. Uh, okay, a lot of my followers uh, are are uh, on on the far right, like super super far right. How's that? I'm, my name is Jeff Gomez. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in what they have to say and how they're saying it and what the uh, communication is. I'm interested in learning um, what is alienating them from Disney movies mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and and other kinds of of uh, entertainment product because that's costing my clients money
0: <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or
1: my partners m- money. Right. You're not going to buy, you know, Marvel superhero toys because you hate Walt Disney Company because it's hyper woke and and, and so forth. Well, what's with that? You know, how does that work? Um, uh, Talk to me about that. Uh, And, and you learn even if you walk away completely disagreeing with this person uh and um uh, and so forth at least you're walking away and there is tranquility and the other person at least has felt heard and mm-hmm. that um uh deescalates uh, the yep. the conflict do you see what i'm saying
0: oh absolutely the the uh, so there's a guy named walter wink he talks about the myth of redemptive violence and This is more on a figurative sense, but yeah, it's so easy to dehumanize the people who have already tried to dehumanize us. And it's like, it really doesn't work. You know, we get caught in that trap and going back and forth. And so even though I kind of had a different idea with that information, glut, I think you're right. Because if we go on and we log on to these different sites, and I know we say it, but like, if we actually viewed that person as a real person, apart from the very clear bots that are on LinkedIn and Twitter, yes, you know, like it, it does make things a lot easier. And I'll, I'll be honest, Jeff, like you're one of the few people I know that has a platform that I do. I do see you doing that because it is very easy to jump on the, the bandwagon of just writing people off. And, you know, that's obviously another conversation for another time, but it just, it doesn't get you anywhere by doing that. You, you end up alienating yourself as well. You know, I just there's That's countless right. stories. Um, you know, uh, people people really do change. Uh, I'm gonna drop a link in the description. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite stories is uh, about a lady named Kelly Gissendanner, and I, I know I probably pronounced her name wrong, but she actually ended up going. Uh, t- she was sentenced to death, and on death row, she ended up uh, dialoguing with a a theologian, and mm. uh, uh, Jürgen Moltmann. And ended up being life changing for her, and just the whole story is absolutely beautiful. It just makes me think, like, how many people in our lives, like, you know, we're we're seeing this microcosm of who they are at this very moment, but like we have no idea who they're going to be in, you know, five five minutes, five months, five years, and trying to temper that, it's it's tough. But I feel like that's going to be the the way forward if we're going to keep doing this global network that uh, 100% we've got. And,
1: and david my my last thought on this subject is that we do need to acknowledge um uh, how wonderful social media has been in allowing mm-hmm. for people to um, uh be overt about fundamentals of identity um mm-hmm. uh, so we are having people who would ordinarily harbor secrets and um uh and and uh, uh, be afraid of their own uh, aspects of identity um or or feel shame or or feel isolated um, we we also are are allowing for people who are neurodiverse and mm-hmm. some of the people I get into tiffs with. <laughs> I, I don't realize that they're neurodiverse until yeah. <laughs> late in the game. And I, right, like, oh, of, <laughs> <laughs> of course, um, of now, course. Now it makes sense. Um, and, um, and then it, it enables you to uh, address them in different ways that, that are far more effective. Uh, and, and that's a, that's a new uh, 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 communication form. Uh, David, that we're going to start seeing how to communicate with the neurodiverse and allow mm-hmm. for them to participate in ways that are going to make the world better uh, yeah. because uh, they they may have some kind of affliction or, or disorder, but they also see the world in entirely uh, novel ways uh, that can actually be pretty helpful uh, mm-hmm. uh, for us all. So, you know, that's... Um, uh, a, a, a great aspect of potential that's yet uh, not fully explored
0: that's so awesome that's uh yeah, I feel like that is a wonderful place to leave it um before we end though, I've got a pop quiz for you uh- oh <laughs> do you know the original five ultra os
1: oh. <laughs> <laughs> if you know the, if you know the the newer one too i know there's like the 2021
0: and then the 2011 one yes uh,
1: oh my god I, I i could not rattle them off uh without uh, looking I at a browser either.
0: so i want to share some context here so we've talked about ultraman um but in the original series i i don't remember was it return of ultraman that that I think, yeah, I think it was Return of Ultraman where that really became a defined thing. But these are five oaths or things that these kids would recite, uh, apparently taught by Ultraman. But it was just kind of a way to try to instill some morals and uh, values into the kids. And it's super cute. The first one is, I will not go to school in an empty stomach. Uh, Number two is, I will air my laundry when the weather is good. (laughs) Number three is, I will watch out for cars when watching the street. Or crossing the street, I guess. Um, which, you know, in context in the sixties and seventies, Japan, like cars were absolute horror for kids. <laughs> um, number four, I will not rely on others. And number five, my personal favorite, I will play and run around barefoot. And <laughs> I just just something about that. It was just I uh I I remember I think it was the first episode of Mabius where he walks up and they just start shouting the ultra o's and it's just it just there's a i've got a very but deep, the, you know spot you're
1: you're illustrating um uh, the the term for for this is the sabido method sabido and and that is the infusion of of life lessons uh, wisdom I- into um uh entertainment content um, uh, with with some purpose and and look how wonderful that is it's so charming and and um uh, you know, um, you know, affecting mm-hmm. a- and, uh, and I love how the oaths have been updated over the course yep. of, of time. And, um, and it speaks to everything that we've been uh, speaking to, uh, during this uh, wonderful podcast.
0: Awesome. Well, Jeff, as always, it is a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, so normally I would link people to your social media, but being anti, no. Um, so where, where can people find you? Where can they get in touch with you? If they've got questions to ask, uh, I'll make sure to link it in the description as well.
1: Absolutely. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Jeff underscore Gomez use the underscore because the other Jeff Gomez really is not happy with me. Um, and, um, but the, the lately Twitter has been lots of Ultraman stuff coming yeah. from me. Uh, LinkedIn is my professional, uh, uh site where I, I do talk about some of the issues that we've discussed, uh, uh, today and, um, and you can just easily find me, Jeff Gomez on LinkedIn.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to make sure to link that piece that, uh, you did back in 2014 about, like. uh, uh, winter soldier that was a very very good piece very wasn't Spanish. that huh? do uh, i know my
1: stuff or what
0: that's what i'm saying like <laughs> it, you, you knew it back then and i don't know we'll see if uh, dc gets it figured out but uh, again jeff thank you so much for joining the show with us tonight
1: you got it david thank you
0: Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, it'd mean a lot if you could share it on social media or leave a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. Or if you're in the market to hire a team to bring your project to life, you can head over to folkwise.io or our LinkedIn page, which is in the episode description and shoot us a message. We would love to talk to you. Until next time.